Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Can I make my side softer? Can I make my side firmer? Whenever I want? Can, Can we, we sleep, sleep cooler? Sleep Number does that. Cools up to eight times faster and lets you choose your ideal comfort on either side. 94% of Sleep Number smart sleepers report better sleep. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. If you ask 100 people what the deadliest weather risk is, odds are they're going to pick something like a hurricane, tornado, or lightning. Some may even say cold temperatures with how brutal it gets in the northern tier during the winter. But the real answer is heat. And it's not necessarily just the record heat in the hottest time of the day. It also includes the overnight temperatures that don't let our bodies cool down. And that's the key word right there, our bodies. The National Weather Service meteorologists in the Western region have developed a forecast product that will make it easier for everyone to understand their heat risk. And we have Paul and Yigeth to join us on the show to talk about it. Paul, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for the invitation. You know, I, I was telling Paul, you know, I've known him for some time and I asked him if he'd done Weather Geeks before and he didn't think so. And I was like, that's our bad because he's really an interesting guy that we should have talked to by now uh, on the Weather Geeks podcast or TV show. Um, Paul, here it comes. Uh, I asked this question to every Weather Geeks guest right out of the gate. How did you become a Weather Geek? Uh, I got into meteorology and weather back in middle school. Uh, most kids go through like an earth science class, right? Like maybe seventh, eighth grade, somewhere middle school. And I went through it and it seemed really interesting to me. And I just kind of started going down that path and got into high school and I just kind of thought this is what I'm going to do. It didn't really seem to be any question in my mind. So I remember going through high school and doing university visits. And I remember looking at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. I uh, did a trip down to OU in Norman and ultimately decided to stay in my home state of Minnesota. And I went to St. Cloud State University, which has a bit of a smaller program, but a pretty, pretty solid program up there. Um, you know, growing up in Minnesota, it's a lot of weather up there. It just get very much four seasons of weather up in Minnesota. So there's always something interesting going on and just kind of flourished from there. Now, you grew up in Minnesota, but you now work in Phoenix. That's quite the extreme difference in temperature. Which do you prefer? Uh, I, I actually I like the cold better. Uh, you can always put more layers on. You can only take so many layers off. So it's kind of one way I, I look at it. Yeah, that's interesting. And they're they're both they both can be deadly under the most extreme conditions. Let me give you a little bit of his background. Uh, Paul is the science and operations officer at the National Weather Service Phoenix, uh, where he leads the, the training in R2O and O2R efforts there in the office. He's a former MIC and Sue at NWS Hanford, California. 
has a master's degree from Arizona State University and a bachelor's degree from St. Cloud University in meteorology. His master's degree is in geography uh, from Arizona State as well. I think we probably somewhat crossed paths during your time period there uh, as well. So it's, I'm really excited to talk to you about heat. I mean, you know, it's really interesting because I think heat's finally, and I, I wanna get your opinion on this, I think heat's starting to get the attention that it deserves. What I mean by that is people certainly talk about hurricanes and tornadoes and floods, and uh, we see more coverage. Heat's kind of been sort of flying under the radar a bit. And as we know, it can be quite deadly in its own right. Where do you think we are in conveying risk of heat just as a society and as an enterprise in general? I mean, it certainly seems to be getting more, you know, unfortunately notoriety because the impacts are increasing, it seems, from the heat. So. Um, yeah, you know, I, when I started first working really in the heat space, it's maybe been 10 years or so now, um, even in the Southwest, you know, that was starting to gain traction at that point, maybe around 2005 or so in the Phoenix area. Um, but it's still, I, I don't know if it conveys the same uh, punch that a lot of the other weather hazards have. And I kind of, in a lot of presentations I do, I end up putting this introductory slide that kind of shows the challenge of communicating heat is because you know, I have a picture of a house before the heat wave and then a picture of a house after the heat wave and it looks exactly the same, you know, and it's not, you don't get the visual cues with, with heat events that you get with tornadoes or floods or hurricanes or winter storms or literally anything else because the, the temperature comes and the temperature goes and it's, you know, only under the most absolute extreme conditions do you actually start to see infrastructure, you know, start to change because of the extreme temperatures, but for the most part, it's, it's transparent to most folks. Um, so that's, it's been a challenge, but it's been coming. It is, like I said, getting more notoriety, more interest because the impacts are really starting to pile up, and people are doing better research. I feel and and starting to understand more deeply all the impacts that he can have. Not just you know a lot of a lot of people tend to focus on the most extreme impact that people die, which obviously you're trying to avoid. But there's still far more lesser impacts. People just get people getting sick. Uh, so the economic costs associated with heat, increased cooling costs. I mean, people's electric bills go up from from heat. So you know, it's and with the trends in the in the climate, especially across the western U.S., I mean, it's just becoming more and more noticeable. Yeah, that was a really interesting visual that you mentioned about the house before and 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 after an event, a heat wave. It, it is the same, and I think that's a powerful message for the challenge we face. Another thing that I tweeted my disgust about earlier this year is that from a media standpoint, we have to stop covering extreme heat waves with ice cream cones, kids holding ice cream cones and frolicking around in, in, in pools and fountains at the mall, because, you know, that's one aspect of it being hot. But, you know, I, I think, you know, we need to shift in sort of the mindset of what heat is, particularly, as you note, the increasing intensity and frequency, perhaps, of heat waves due to climate change and just climate warming, urban heat islands, and so forth. And I actually had a couple of major media organizations reach out to me after that tweet and said, you know, it got us thinking in our editorial meetings and so forth. And so that that was frankly my intent. So you talk about this visual of, you know, heat sort of not destroying our homes or ravaging the roadways or shutting down uh, the interstates. What are some other challenges of conveying heat risk from your lens? Depending on the climate in the Southwest, in Phoenix, you know, a lot of places such as this, maybe the Southern U.S., you're dealing with something that's uh, endemic, essentially. So, I mean, Phoenix, we have on average 110 days a year that's 100 degrees or hotter. 
you know, our heat season can start as early as late April even and can continue into early October. And you're talking about a, a solid six months, half of the year when you can be having uh, negative health income, uh, negative health outcomes, uh, having these impacts from the heat. So keeping up that messaging and continuing to to push it, there's still a danger out there from heat, even the, the, the common heat that is like the typical climate that a lot of places have at southern latitudes, you know, can cause problems almost any day. And so how do you how do you keep that messaging up that people are constantly at threat? So if it was, you know, imagine like a hurricane warning going for six months. I mean, that is ridiculous as that would sound, but it, it just tends to numb people to that message and to that threat. Yeah. Talking with Paul Anigath about heat. He's at the National Weather Service in Phoenix. Yeah. And I know you've been sort of at this for a while, even as, like I said, we kind of came across each other while you were in graduate school, I think. Um, what, what made you decide to research heat, especially coming from Minnesota? Uh, so I've been in the Southwest since 2006. Uh, when I first got to the Phoenix office as a forecaster, uh, the office was in the process of evolving how it warns heat, essentially, you know, how it, it, it uh, notified people that heat is a danger. Because the prior, prior to about 2004 or so, the criteria that the local office had for issuing an excessive heat warning was a heat index of 125 degrees, which I don't think has ever actually happened in, in Phoenix or just very, very few days that that's happened. So um, that was more just this idea, you know, seemingly this idea that the heat is constant and you can't really warn for it. But uh, when I arrived into the office, there was kind of some increasing research and some of the local health partners were looking more at this and starting to see that, you know, heat is actually real, you know, is actually a big impact. And they started looking at things and like, oh, uh, you know, actually last year, 50 people, this is back, you know, in 2005 or so, you know, last year, 50 people died from heat. This is kind of a big deal if 50 people died from a tornado or a flash flood, uh, you know, that would obviously cause a lot of focus to be put on that. So from there, and as I got to the office, you know, we kind of got involved in improving our our thresholds and looking at when we might actually start issuing warnings. And so we start, you know, it might seem odd to issue excessive heat warnings for a place that's very hot, but there's this realization that you do have a lot of heat impacts, um, and they happen almost every single day. I, I, I would say every day during the during the heat season. Um, so it just naturally, I gravitated towards that. I mean, it has a very strong climate bend to it. So I have a lot of interest in the on the climate side of things. And so adding my ex expertise to that and trying to help develop these thresholds and working with partners to to figure out some kind of system where we can give people a heads up to what kind of danger heat is going to pose. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. 
And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Paul and Yigeth. He's from the National Weather Service Phoenix office, where they know a little bit about heat out there. Uh, and as we are actually taping this episode, we're in late August, and I don't know what exactly the temperatures are right there, but I know it's been pretty warm. Uh, you have a heat risk forecast that has been developed, and I want to dig into that now. So explain what it is and why you were motivated to do it. Heat risk is a project that we've been working on for nearly 10 years at this point, uh, born out of the Western US. And, and part of it was really pushed out, our partners pushing us to, to develop something where we can have some more consistent uh, criteria, if you could say, to alerting for extreme temperatures. So. Uh, some folks may know the National Weather Service has 122 local forecast offices. They all cover a little a little slice of the U.S. and they have some leeway in setting their own thresholds and when they issue heat advisories or heat warnings. Uh, but that can be kind of problematic if you think about our partners that have jurisdictions that are larger than forecast areas, say for a state. Uh, like example, state of California has 10 different weather offices that cover some part of it. Uh, Texas has 14. I mean, so some of these bigger states can have a lot of local weather offices to work with. Uh, so in the Western US, and you think about a state like California specifically, so it's got 10 forecast offices, it has a huge range of climates in California. You have all the way from, you know, coastal areas, you have inland, large inland valleys, you have tremendous mountain ranges, you have deserts, uh, you have, you know, deep forests. So trying to think, you know, can we develop some kind of system where we can take take the uh, location's climatology and help leverage that to determine what extreme temperature, what's it going to be extreme for that particular location? And that's kind of where we started going with heat risk is trying to leverage uh, higher resolution climatology data sets to determine these thresholds and make a tiered system so that our partners are not just waiting for the, the high-end alerts to come up because recognizing that there are a lot of impacts that happen at temperatures far lower than that. So, you know, we really need tiered systems to, to help our customers uh, who are working with different populations and, and provide them the information they need. So, uh, you know, not everyone is affluent sitting in a house that is air conditioned and they can deal with the heat, no problem. Uh, there's a lot of communities with various levels of risk and susceptibility and vulnerability that fall below that. So that's what heat risk does is we, again, leverage climatology. Uh, in our latest updates, we're actually using uh, quite a bit of heat health science in there as well to determine these thresholds. And then we just compare our forecast temperatures against these thresholds we've derived, and then we can give these these different levels and these different color codes that our partners can look at to help them make help them make the decisions that they need to make. Yeah, this this really is an evolution of how we talk about heat. Now, you earlier mentioned heat index, which I think many people are familiar with. It's sort of this combination of temperature and the humidity and how it feels, quote unquote. It's sort of the sort of a same analog, if you will, to the wind chill in a, in a cold environment. Uh, how does your heat risk factor in compare to things like wet bulb globe temperature? Is it utilizing it? Does it compare to, uh, tell us a little bit, first of all, what wet bulb globe temperature is and how it relates to or differs from or is associated with heat risk? Yeah, it's there's a couple of different, you know, 
different tools that we can use to define how hot it is outside. So you mentioned the heat index or an apparent temperature uh, that was developed in the very late 1970s and kind of gained prominence in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, that's uh, it's, actually, if you look at how, how it's developed, it was based on a, a somewhat average person, if you will. It was a man who was, I think, five foot seven and weighed 170 pounds and was walking at a leisurely pace uh, with white clothing on it. So there's very these very specific conditions that it was developed for, um, and it, it you know it has a, its purpose. It's kind of uh, entrenched in the society. It seems like at this point, you know, it's a way for to combine the humidity and the temperature and give you some number that that equates to how hot it is. Wet bulb cooled temperature is a little different. It takes into account more variables even. So it's looking at things like the dry and the wet bulb temperature, looking at solar radiation, uh, cloud cover, looking at wind speed and things of that nature, and then putting that into a, it, it's labeled temperature, but it's actually an index. Um, and so that has its use as well. That was developed more by the military, I believe back in the 1950s or 60s. Um, and so that has its application there. Uh, so there's somewhat different tools for different populations. We've developed the heat risk to be more, uh, I, I want to have broad applications, so whether, you know, you're all layers of society because we tried to look at, um, you know, developing these different levels. So we tried to make it very broadly applicable uh, for heat risk. The only inputs that we use to generate it are actually the, the high temperature and the low temperatures. There's no uh, humidity. There's no cloud cover. There's no wind speed. Um, this has the benefit. Um, for one, we know that based on research with our heat health partners, that the max temperature, the high temperature, is the primary drivers that it has the highest correlation with negative heat uh, health impacts. Uh, and then we also leverage the kind of general knowledge that um, when you have elevated humidity, you tend to have elevated low temperatures as well. So if you think it's a really warm and humid night, right? So um, if the humidity is very high, if your dew points are very high, that's gonna keep your temperatures quite high as well. So we leverage that in our in our algorithms and, and processing. So, um, so it, we also, I would say, argue have the benefit that the high and low temperatures are the best things that we forecast. I mean, you think about the accuracy of what you're forecasting. So if you are just doing high and low temperature, I believe even out to five to six days into the future, the average air across the U.S. is going to be on the order of three degrees or so. Um, so we can use use what we're really good at in this system. And you think about something like what globe temperature, what the forecast accuracy is going to drop off quite a bit on you know, how much cloud cover is there and what is the wind speed uh, as you get further out in time. So it's going to be a little bit more challenging to use that to plan for, for several days out. You said something that I kind of teased a bit in the introduction, and it's the importance or the significance of low temperatures and the elevated low temperatures. That's what's always of concern to me as someone that's done a little urban heat island research myself. Um, the heat and the evenings. I think we saw that with the heat wave in Europe back in 2003 and four. We didn't have to go back that far recently uh, with the heat that we've seen in Europe and particularly parts of the UK and even in the Pacific Northwest. People aren't acclimatized for these warm nighttime temperatures. Talk to us about the importance of these low temperatures and, and the health risk associated. I mean, if, you're, if it's hot overnight, you can't cool off, right? And that's, I mean, you've seen that in the 1995 Chicago heat wave. Uh, you mentioned the Pacific Northwest heat wave. Uh, there was uh, some pretty interesting uh, data that came out of there. Some of the some of the weather community, they actually had temperature data loggers inside people's uh, homes. And you see that the 
for people that don't have air conditioning, so the heat's just building up inside this house or this apartment. And you would think as soon as the sun starts to cool down, you can start cooling off, but that's not really the case. They were finding that the temperatures indoors actually peaked or remained elevated well into the evening hours and maybe didn't peak until 10 or 11 o'clock at night. So, um, and then it just, you can't get, can't get that out there. So, so there's those aspects. If you live in very hot places, more Southern latitudes like Phoenix, you know, I can give the examples that uh, there's some days where we don't, our low temperature doesn't go below 85 degrees or 90 degrees. So, I mean, the coolest at night, it gets is 90 degrees. That means your air conditioning is running 24 hours a day, essentially. And that might be the case for several days or even several weeks, uh, you know, if we stay quite warm. So um, just, again, from people that may have ability to mitigate the heat because they're in a house and air conditioning, but that has big impacts on your on the economics of running your house, right? That you have to run an air conditioner nonstop, essentially, uh, for, for a huge chunk ironically, of just to interrupt you for a second, ironically, it also has ironic implications because when we're running air conditioning, we're using power. And in some cases, that's fossil fuel burning, which is adding to warming. Yeah, yeah. So that means more power output and your, your exhaust or heat back out into the air. So it's just kind of keeping those temperatures elevated. Um, and then if you don't have the ability to mitigate, you know, you don't live in a house, um, then you got those challenges if you, you know, you can't run air conditioning because it's too expensive. Uh, maybe you don't have a home, unfortunately, and you're on the streets and now you're dealing with heat 24 hours a day. Um, in a lot of communities, they have, they may open cooling shelters, but those cooling shelters may close at five or six or seven o'clock and push people back out onto the streets. And it's still going to be very hot. So there's this, this challenge of, you know, those elevated temperatures overnight that it makes it the heat a problem, not just when the sun is out, but, you know, around, around the clock. Something you mentioned as you talked about air conditioning, I, I, you know, my my colleagues at the Weather Channel, the production team, uh, included in some of the notes that I often get when I tape these podcasts that this scale actually includes power outage risk in some way, your heat risk, or at least is considering or connected in some way. Uh, how, how so? Uh, essentially, when we're looking at the, it's a it's a five tier system. So when you get to that highest tier, that's going to be your most significant heat events for that climatology. So that's when you're going to start to see, you know, we're talking about, you know, record high temperatures or all time record high temperatures. So when you're getting things like that, that's going to stress your certain stressing your infrastructure system. So um, you see that in a lot of places, maybe more so where the extreme heat is not as common, like Pacific Northwest, you kind of had that uh, just earlier this year with the heat wave in like the UK and France, you start to get infrastructure impacts, whether it's roads buckling, you know, as different types of asphalt start to melt, uh, power lines can start sagging and you can get starting brownouts that may spark, you know, fires. There's all sorts of things that can start to happen when you get temperatures that are pretty much outside the envelope of the climate for that location, you know, so the environment, the system is not built to handle that stuff. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Paul and you get about heat risk and I, you know, I, it's out there. I think there's a prototype. I'm looking at a prototype map right now. This is a podcast. So you can't see it. So I'm going to try to paint a visual for you. I'm looking at a map of the Western U.S. and there are a series of colors uh, representing different levels of this heat risk. So, for example, green, no elevated risk, yellow, low risk, orange, moderate risk for those who are sensitive to heat red heat risk for much of the population, especially those who are heat sensitive and those without effective cooling. And magenta, very high risk for the entire population due to long duration heat. So that's kind of how the heat risk prototype is utilized and characterized. Uh, Do you think the National Weather Service's choice in coloring certain products and risks would be a pro or con to this prototype? And this is interesting because I just recently saw a Twitter discussion by a guy named Nate Johnson. Shout out to Nate uh, Johnson, who many of us know. And he was talking about the use of magenta and pink uh, to represent uh, extreme conditions. But there's research that suggests that that's not necessarily the color that uh, gets people's attentions, perhaps. So what are your thoughts here on this is really some of the social science communication aspect of risk communication? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly it's been pretty hot, no pun intended, a hot topic for the last five or 10 years, I would say is like effectively communicating weather information. Uh, for the heat risk product, it's, you know, it's geared towards hot temperatures. So we want to have some kind of warm color scheme with it. Uh, we actually did, we did a big version two update this year. And one of the things we did change was the color specifically. Uh, we did push these through and test them with, you know, the color scent for folks that are color sensitive or cannot see certain colors. And so we did adjust the, the hue on some of these colors to make them more readable. So. Um, so we did, we, we've seen that information. We tried to take that account into our heat risk product here as well. So uh, you, you mentioned early on in the podcast, you talked about the National Weather Service suite of heat watches and warnings. Uh, so how, how is the heat risk product related again to those that suite? So for the Western U.S., uh, uh, Western region of the National Weather Service, so that would basically be all the states from Montana to Arizona, west to the coast. We've actually been using heat risk as kind of our uh, primary decision tool for about five years now. Uh, We leverage this to help us make these decisions of when and where to issue our our different heat products. So the the alerts you might see would be a heat advisory. There's the heat warning. And the heat warnings may be preceded by a watch, an excessive heat watch. So uh, the algorithm takes into account that there still are these legacy products um, because, you know, kind of a, a downfall, I would say, a shortcoming of these legacy products is that they're binary. You know, it's either there is a warning or there is not a warning. There's no shades of gray uh, going on there. So if you're trying to make some kind of decision, you know, it can be kind of difficult when you're only getting, you know, a yes, no type of information. But the weather community is very much is looking and moving towards probabilistic type information or adding additional layers to what is provided. So that's a, a strength of heat risk is that it has these layers built in there. So. If you are, again, decision maker or someone that's working with communities that are much more susceptible to heat or have lower ability to mitigate that heat, 
you know, you might be concerned about a low or a moderate level. You don't necessarily want to wait for the high or very high categories to kick in because that's too late. You're already getting your communities you're working with are getting well impacted at that point. But again, the heat risk does recognize that uh, heat risk does recognize that there's still is a place for those legacy products. So we do use it within our algorithms to make suggestions to local weather service forecasters about when and where it's issue those products. And they're generally uh, for like the warnings are generally geared towards those high or very high categories and the advisories may come in depending on the climate, the more at that moderate or very or kind of a low high level. What, what's been the general response so far among your stakeholders to this test phase or prototyping phase? It's been pretty positive. Um, you know, I gave an example earlier of working with like state of California that has many offices to, to work with. Uh, this provides them with kind of a general, you know, one solution that they can broadly see across the state and see what the different levels are, what's the risk that's going to be associated for all the different communities in their state. Uh, here in Arizona, we've worked with a lot of different partners that have taken uh, up the heat risk. So we see a lot of our media partners using it live on air, uh, tweeting the information out. Our state health department has incorporated some of it into their different plans that they have that we've even seen at the county level uh, integration of heat risk into some of the hazard mitigation plans. So there's certainly folks that are seeing it and, and recognizing the value in it. We talked a little bit about changing climate, um, the triple whammy I often talk about, particularly in urban areas, because you have climate warming, you have heat waves and, and the intensity and frequency of those perhaps being impacted and then you have the urban heat. And so people living in cities are certainly getting that triple whammy, but certainly heat doesn't care whether you live in a heat or a rural area. It's a, a it's a can be quite deadly. Um, but how are you thinking products like this will evolve as our climate continues to warm? Uh, we did in our latest update here for version two, we did essentially take into account some of that. So when we were creating our thresholds, uh, we leveraged the new normals that came out. So uh, NOAA puts out every 10 years, which is a standard across the world to update normals. So we have the 1991 to 2020 normals now are, are used in heat risk. And we also uh, increased the period of record. So previously we'd been using up to 2015. So now we're using up to 2020. So we have some more of the hotter years uh, associated in there as well. So, and we did see some of these shifts, you know, depending on uh, different places, the normals did jump quite a bit in some places, you know, especially like low temperatures, you might have seen uh, some places increase three to four degrees, depending on the time of year, which is really significant shifting to, to see happen. So, um, you know, it's going to be interesting, I think, to see as time goes by, do communities, do people acclimate to these warming temperatures, or do we accumulate more impacts uh, because of the rising temperatures? And that, you know, it's, it, I'm be curious to see how that how that plays out, but we're right in the middle of finding out. Ultimately, what's your goal five years out for this product? Uh, we are in the process of working to roll it out nationally. Uh, I have a personal anticipation that we will see some prototype or an experimental version of this nationally. Uh, where we go as an agency when it comes to heat, I'm, I can't necessarily say, and I'm not really in the position to, to say that. Um, you know, we may, as we talked about, there's kind of this suite of different products to tell you how hot it's going to be. And some of it just really depends on what the application is that you're looking for. Um, you know, uh, not everyone needs to use a hammer. Some people need to use a screwdriver. Some people need to use a saw. And so that may end up being 
the approach is that there's a bit of a toolbox here that, that the customer can find what what works for them and that we can provide that service. But I think um, probably within the, the short term, I would say, again, probably within one to three years, I would anticipate seeing some of these products broadly applied to uh, the entire country. And then kind of this, uh, there's been more focus on trying to consolidate the thresholds that these, you know, heat alerts are issued at. I've been working more with health partners. So that's something that we, we've certainly been doing. Uh, different offices have been doing at a local level, and we've certainly baked into the heat risk as well as working with our heat partners at CDC. And, and if the listeners of the Weather Geeks podcast are curious about getting their eyes on this, there are prototypes out there on the web, right? Yeah. So if you go to any of the offices, weather service offices in the Western region, uh, they should all have under some of the drop-down menus, I believe under forecast, it'll say experimental heat risk. And so you can find it right there. So it's all, all publicly available information. Yeah. Where can people find out more about you, Paul? Are you in social media or you, uh, your office? I, I know, I think you're out there at least on Twitter. Uh, I'm, I'm not on Twitter personally. Our office and all the weather offices have Facebook and, and Twitter accounts. So I, if folks aren't following them, I certainly would recommend they do that um, and to see how the heat is messaged. Uh, I'd also give a plug for your local health partners to make sure that you're following them because they have uh, very valuable information to add on the impact side of heat. I'm going to also take personal privilege here to just remind you, if you are listening to the Weather Geeks podcast, be sure you're following, know your, first of all, know who your local National Weather Service office is and where you live and make sure you're following them. They're, they're ultimately the, the front end source for much of the information uh, that's out there in a warning risk capacity. And I, I, I look around sometimes and I see people like me or others or other organizations that have more followers than their actual local weather service office. And that it should be exactly the opposite. I think in any situation involving weather risk, I think they should always have uh, the most followers. So make sure you're following your na- local National Weather Service office wherever you live. Uh, that's I, that's Dr. Schiff's assignment. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that's okay, though, because uh, like you, you folks like you are very valuable and that you are uh, amplifiers of the message, right? And so it's a community that we all work together. So uh, you see that happen a lot. So, uh, you know, we're happy that folks like you may have uh, 3 million followers. I don't know what you have. But well, I don't you have think. that many. But, yeah, no, I think it's important and I happily certainly amplify, but I also am concerned about some messaging out there that's not so good, too. So there's sort of a, a double-edged sword with that. But I yeah, definitely you know, try to be sure you're, you know who your forecast office is, where you live. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, before I leave, though, we do have a Geek of the Week this week. We try to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Sarah Haas. Sarah is a materials engineer whose favorite type of weather is thunderstorms. Depending on where you live, it's the perfect time of year for them. As a child, Sarah loved capturing photos of lightning during the storms. It's a great hobby as long as we remember to stay safe while capturing it all on film. And if you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Again, Paul, thank you so much for finally uh, being able to join us on Weather Geeks. I knew you'd be a great guest and you were. Thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll talk to you next time on Weather Geeks. Weather Geeks.